0: You are listening to the Lenses Podcast from Shades Mountain Baptist Church, engaging the world through the lens of the gospel. For more information and resources, visit shades.org slash lenses. We have a special guest tonight. Uh, it's Pastor Drew Griffin. He's been a GIC missionary for two or three years. He's the pastor of Cross Church in Manhattan. Uh, when the young professionals went up to New York uh, Just last June, we got to visit with Drew and get to know him. We've sent several teams up to partner with him. I know the college ministry has done that a number of years, and we're glad to hear him tonight. Uh, Before he comes up, let us pray together. Lord, thank you for your goodness, kindness, and mercy, for your presence here with us tonight, for what you're doing in our hearts and in our church I pray, Lord, as we continue to talk about engaging culture and looking at things through a biblical lens, Lord, I pray that you would um, enlighten our hearts, soften our hearts and our minds, and let us hear from you from your word. Thank you for Drew, his presence with us tonight. May we hear from him gladly. In the name of Jesus, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks. Well, good evening. Uh, When uh, Jacob started calling out numbers, I wonder if I was in a bingo uh, hall. I know they do that around here. So um, uh, I was relieved when no one shouted out. Um, This is going to fall off. Hold on. All right. Thank you for having me. Um, It's good to be here with you uh, at Shades. I love Shades. I love this church. I'm grateful. For your church, for your commitment to the gospel and to missions, uh, we, know we would not be where we are uh, in Manhattan doing what we do without your church and without your pastor, Danny Wood. Uh, your commitment to us means a great deal uh, to, to me and to our church body. And so it's anytime I have an opportunity to stand in front of any of you, um, the first thing that I want to do is just communi- to communicate my gratitude and just to let you know how the leadership of your church um, really allows this church to be used by God for the greater kingdom uh, around the country and around the world, and so you should be very grateful that by just god 's providence and his grace that you 're here at this church because there are a lot of churches right now that this would be a bingo gathering okay so this is uh, so just thank God that uh, it 's not you may wish you 're there forty minutes from now, but um <clears throat> Hopefully not. Uh, New York City is a a unique environment uh, for ministry. Few places in America present the challenge uh, for communicating the gospel in an impactful way that New York City does. Uh, What I most often face is not kind of belligerency or anti-religious kind of outright attack, but really utter indifference. When presented with the Word of God, uh, the Scripture, most people uh, that... uh, come in contact with it uh, through our ministry, kind of have much of the same response that the men of Athens did 2,000 years ago when Paul went to Mars Hill. He said that some of them laughed. Some of them said, you know, we'll come back and maybe we'll hear more. Uh, But some do actually believe. And so it's encouraging uh, when people do actually sometimes believe. But for the most part, there's just a great deal of, of just indifference. And each and every one of you, if you claim the name of Christ, you're called to bear witness to this world about the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. To preach the word, right? That Paul says, in season and out of season. And we're to be a beacon a uh, lighthouse which shines regardless of the environment around us in light and in fog, but even in the Bible Belt of of Birmingham. Uh, this has become more and more difficult with each passing year. And I think you, many of you would probably be, bear witness to that and be able to testify to that. My desire tonight um, is to encourage you that it's not simply enough to read the Bible, nor is it adequate just to shout it at culture like a a sandwich board evangelists that are largely ignored in in New York City. You see them all the time uh, gather around with kind of sandwich boards, just kind of shouting at people at street corners. We must understand Scripture's relevance to culture, and we've got to see how it shapes our speech and can impact our society. So my desire tonight, in the time that we have, is to help encourage you and embolden you in your use of the Bible to impress upon you its reality and its relevance. I want to share with you a way to view Scripture and see how it records our history and relates to our present and reinforces our hope in the future. I want you to see that the word as history is a prism of God's glory. That interpreting that history, is it is a prophetic voice to our present time. And that in surpassing history, it is a promise of future hope. And under each one of these headings, the prism of glory and a prophetic voice and a promise of future hope, we're going to look at three kind of subheadings in this talk. So under each one of these headings, we're going to look at how God operates in the word, what the implications are for us as Christians, and what this finally looks like when we engage culture with the word in this way. Okay? So the prism of glory... um, Listen to this quote. "Quote: We're moments away, and I think culture's already there, and the church will continue to be more irrelevant when it quotes letters from two thousand years ago as their best defense." Unquote. So this is not said by Christopher Hitchens or Richard Dawkins or some atheist or even like a liberal theologian like Bart Ehrman. This is Rob Bell, right, former pastor of Morris Hill Church, and this is what we're up against. This this idea that to proclaim the word of God just puts the church off to the sidelines of history and makes it uh, irrelevant. And it's easy for those of us in a room like this to totally dismiss someone like Rob Bell. But it's important to remember that even though he's a defrocked pastor, he's not dismissed by the culture. And he may be ignorant, but he's in no way ignored by the culture. Especially he said that statement in in an interview with Oprah Winfrey. So let's kind of gather around and let's get one thing straight before we begin. If you're serious about engaging culture with the word of God, then you must stand on it as solid ground and believe that it is true, that the history that it records is accurate and that the truth that it espouses is timeless. And if you're not there, then you might as well just kind of give up and go home and and not try and engage the culture with the Bible. But if you're not there, stay and let's talk about it. And I want you to be there, okay, by by the end of the evening. Francis Schaefer, who was a, an apologist uh, well-known author, uh, issued this call to us over 40 years ago when he said, unless the Bible is without error, not only when it speaks of salvation matters, but also when it speaks of history and the cosmos, we have no foundation for answering the questions concerning the existence of the universe and its form and the uniqueness of man. Nor do we have any moral absolutes or certainty of salvation, and the next generation of Christians will have nothing on which to stand. To begin to engage our present, we have to understand our past. Understanding our history as Christians and as human beings is essential because we don't make history as much as we're made by history. The Bible is a historical document, not only in that it's a product of of history, right? But it records human history, and the historian at the helm is none other than the Holy Spirit himself, and one of the most common objections uh, to the Bible that you're going to hear is that it's it's hard to understand, right? That the stories that it tells are of a distant time. The language is from a foreign culture. Maybe even some of this room, right, might say, be willing to admit that at some point in your life you've opened up a Bible and there have been at times you've been confounded or frustrated, Right, or or it just it didn't quite make sense. Maybe none of you would say that. I'm not seeing any heads nod, so you know, room of biblical scholars, have we? But um, I can say, I will confess, I'll be the one guy in the room that, that you can say. Even as a pastor, there have been times when in 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 difficulty, or I've been staring death in the face, and I open up the word, and it's it's hard for me to make sense of of what it says. But we have to begin to see that the Bible is not just a record. Of history, It's not just a pane of glass that we look through and see the world. It's, it's a prism, right? It exposes light that we didn't even know was there. And a prism is nothing but a piece of glass until the light hits it. And Abraham Kuyper, who is a, a theologian and a politician, um, uh, a Danish theologian and politician, said that the, the Holy Scripture is like a diamond. It's dark. In the dark, it's like a piece of glass. But as soon as the light strikes it, The water begins to sparkle, and the scintillation of life greets us. So so the Bible's a prism, right? And it, it, it splits up light and gives us a multifaceted picture of what God is doing in history. So let's look at how God uses this in the Bible. Let's look at an example, right? The story of Exodus. Most of you should know it. I hope. Um, The story of Exodus on one level is um, merely a a piece of history, right? It records historical figures like Pharaoh and, and Ramses and Moses. It records ancient Near East people groups like the Egyptians and the Israelites and the Midianites, and it tells a story. It tells a story of uh, during the Middle Kingdom period of uh, Egyptian history, probably 1300, 1400 BC, um, Israel was enslaved and oppressed by the Egyptians. But then something happens, and uh, Egypt is overturned, and Israel is liberated, and they are led off into Canaan kind of modern-day Palestine. And what's funny is that this is a proven, you know, historical fact. There's a, um, a museum just down the street from me. It's a Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in Manhattan, huge, massive museum. And they had this, this um, uh, exhibit of Middle Kingdom Egyptian art and artifacts Super exciting stuff, if you're a nerd like me, I guess. But anyway, so you, you go there, and they have this thing called the Epewer uh, Papyrus. And what it is, is it's, it's a, a piece of uh, papyrus. It's a piece of paper recorded on it is It is uh, this, this lengthy kind of poem talking about this period in Egyptian history when all of a sudden um, everything was upended, and Egyptian culture was completely turned upside down, so much so that um, uh, the wealthy people became the slaves because they had no longer had slaves of their own. And instead of looking at the reflection in, in polished pieces uh, of metal, they had to just look at the reflection in the water, in the Nile, because everything had been taken away from them. And this is a this is a secular source. This isn't in the Bible, but it's confirming this. Is this is historical uh, reality. But the story of the Exodus that's referenced 20 times uh, in the Bible is much more than just a mere historical record. If you pick it up and you read it and you say, this is nice, you know, this is something that happened... 3500 years ago, but I don't see how it, it impacts me, um, then you need to see that the story of the Exodus is a picture of God's glorious grace through salvation. And the key to understanding that is in Christ. Christ is the prism which divides this out and begins to expand the meaning of the text. There's a a British Old Testament scholar named Alec Mateer who was talking about the Exodus story. And he said this. He said, think about it. Think about what an Israelite would say on the way to Canaan after passing through the Red Sea. If you asked an Israelite, who are you? He might reply, I was in a foreign land under the sentence of death and in bondage, but I took shelter under the blood of the lamb and our mediator led us out and we crossed over. Now we're on our way to the promised land that we're not there yet, but he has given us his law to make us a community and he has given us a tabernacle because we must live by grace and forgiveness and he is present in our midst and he will stay with us until we arrive home. And Matier says that, That's exactly what a Christian says, almost word for word, that we were once in bondage, but we've taken shelter under the blood of the lamb, and we're being led out to a promised land that we're not there yet, but God in his presence is going to be with us until we get there. We begin to look at Scripture when we begin to look through Scripture, through Christ, we begin to see meaning that we previously missed, right? This single beam of light hits that prism, and it just explodes into a multifaceted picture of what is truly there and has always been present, but is rarely understood. So what are the implications, right, for us as Christians? When we begin to read Scripture like this, it opens up to us, and we begin to see the meta-narrative of Scripture, that the Bible is a single unified story across all its books of creation and fall and redemption and consummation and no part of the Bible is useless. All of it points to Christ because, and because in Christ we are transformed, all of scripture has relevance for us. But Jesus himself proves this point. After his resurrection, Luke records that there are a couple of men who are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus, and Jesus appears to them, and he is with them, and they are confused about what has happened. that This man who claimed to be the Messiah was killed and that he was buried, but now his followers are saying that he was resurrected. And Jesus, uh, Luke records, begins to explain all throughout the scriptures of how they point to Jesus as a Messiah, how they point to himself. And what does he say that when uh, Jesus leaves them, the men, both men say, when he explained these things to us, didn't our hearts burn with an understanding? And the understanding was that Jesus gave them that prism of God's glory, right? He gave them the, the rubric to understand the scripture to see that it all points to him. And when you see that and you begin to recognize that, your hearts are going to burn with excitement. And passion. If we understand this, what are the implications now when we engage culture? And when our hearts are burning and a fire for God's Word, when we see Christ throughout all of Scripture and its relevance, that it's not just a dull historical text, but it's a living, breathing testimony of God's love and salvation. What are the implications when we engage culture? If we train ourselves to understand scripture through the prism of Christ, we begin to train ourselves to understand history through the prism of scripture. So what do I mean? Think about it. The Bible records for us, not just the story of God's people, but the story of universal creation, the earth's story, the human story, all of it is given meaning through Christ. And this affects how you engage culture because now culture has theological importance and meaning. Abraham Kuyper again says that no single piece of our mental world is to be hermetically sealed off from the rest. There is not one square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And when you understand this, And you recognize this, that God created water so that one day it could be parted as a symbol of his grace. That he allowed trees to spring up so that one day they could be hewn into a cross. He created the sun so that one afternoon at Calvary that sun could be darkened and three days later it could crest the horizon and shine into an empty tomb. Kings exist so that we know the concept of kingship. Nations exist so that we know what it means to belong to a collective identity. Families, fathers, mothers, children, adoption, all are instituted to point us to the reality of the family of God, our father, and how we are adopted into that family. You begin to see the beauty in culture, even secular culture, as it processes these truths. And it records the beauty of God at work. So instead of railing against culture, we seek to find the truth in it, wherever it exists, and redeem that truth and claim it as Christ and celebrate it. For where they're not humans, the very rocks would cry out and proclaim the glory of God. The word, the word okay, now helps us understand our past. It's, it's a record of history. It's a prism that by which we can see that all of history is just a tapestry for the glory of God. And it trains us to see his gracious truth in the culture around us. But it does more than that, right? It gives us a prophetic voice to engage our present. So let's look at what it means to have a prophetic voice. The consistent picture in the Bible of prophets is of those in their generation who are entrusted with the promises of God and commissioned to remind God's people and the watching world of his promises. So knowing the Bible is essential for this work. You want to be a prophet. You want to engage culture. You want to be one of these people who reminds God's people and the watching world of his promises. You need to know his promises. His promises are in the word. So you need to know the word. And there's no other meaningful engagement that we can have apart from directing people to the promises of God and proclaiming his glory in Christ throughout history. So how does God do this in the Bible? You can look at the, the prophet Jeremiah. right? Jeremiah is, is called at a young age, and he is sent to remind God's people of his promises and to rebuke them for failing to live in light of those promises. In a culture rife with spiritual adultery and idolatry, when people turn to lust to satisfy themselves... and their need for divine love to politics, to satisfy their need for divine protection. This sound like a time that we could recognize. Jeremiah recognized this and he lamented it and he cried out that it did not have to be. So, and the root of his cry was the faithfulness of God and the purpose of man. God created us for a purpose, each and every one of us, across the globe, across cultures, for the same purpose, to know, if, know him and to glorify him and enjoy him forever. And Jeremiah does this and reminds culture of this by proclaiming God's word and resting in that word. And it's the same today, that the prophetic voice looks like this. That the greatest objection to Christianity that I face in, in New York City and that you're likely to face is just one that... Um, that is, like I said, indifferent, but it just r- tries to individualize faith, to subject it just to your own realm of personal experience. You know, what's good for you is good for you. What's good for me is good for me, uh, to each his own. And religion just becomes something that is... Not based in reality it 's just personal individual experience, and this is what you, this is what you get when you talk to people about what they believe and when you begin to proclaim the Word of God to them and that 's great for you i 've got my own thing let me let me be. But this is where the Bible comes into play, and it 's so important. Schaefer said, Francis Schaefer, that Scripture relates true religion to space-time history, which may be expressed in normal literary form, and that's important because our generation takes the word religion and everything religious and turns it into something psychological and psych- uh, and sociological. So, what does he mean by this? He means that the Bible is a true record of history, and it places the work of God in actual space and time. Christianity is not just some uh, supernatural experience. It's not just something that's from beyond. God intersects time and space in Christ and comes and meets us here. Christianity is not just merely a religious experience or an emotional experience. It's, It's real. And we know that because of the record of the Bible. We know that because of the Bible. So what we proclaim, the truths that we profess, the promises that we remind people of are not just abstract. They're not just our ideas. They're not just our experiences that this is what has worked for us. They're, they're real and the promises have actually happened. The greatest, uh, your greatest job as a prophet in this culture is to remind those around you of who they were created by and what they were created for. And these questions, these are questions that everyone is seeking answers to. Schaefer, again, in his book uh, called uh, Death in the City, was written over 40 years ago. If you ever get a chance to to read it and, you know, you're on vacation, um, you know, put down... uh the, the romance novel or whatever, pick up this, right? This would be much, much better. Uh, Death in the City. I know it sounds not all that exciting, but it's, it's really good and, and pertinent, even though it was written 40 years ago. He says, for man is not just a chance conflagration of atoms in the slipstream of meaningless chance history. No, man made in the image of God has a purpose, to be in relationship to the God who is there. And whether it's in Jeremiah's day or in our own recent generations, the effects are the same. When man forgets his purpose, he also forgets who he is and what life means. And this is where we come in. This is where you come in. Your job, our job is to remind those around us of who they are and what their life means. So what does this look like practically in our culture? You transform culture by seeing people around you as image bearers of God. And that, that, you are not against culture, but you seek to transform it. You're not against people, but you see, seek to see them transformed by the word of God in the same way that you have been transformed. Every prophet, whether it's Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, they all approached their tasks with humility because there was a point before they became a prophet that God came to them and called them, and they recognized that they were not worthy to that task. But in each one of their cases, God said, rest in me. He came to them. He touched them. He opened their mouth and he enabled them to speak. They were first changed before they were called to change others. They were used by the word. They didn't merely just use the word for their own purposes. It's not our job as Christians to condemn everything and every person that we see or to use the word to prop up our cultural or political positions. And God forbid that we should be found or caught using the word of God to do anything other than remind people of who they were created by and what they were created for. Far be it if we ever are found or caught to use the word of God as some sort of tool to keep people down or keep people apart or raise us up, or give us any kind of political power. And I say that because we're in a season, in an era, and a time of, of political intrigue, uh, an election season, where that's pretty pertinent. And I think it's important to remind us, if you we're going to be prophets and engage culture, we need to look at how prophets engage culture, and how those who are given the word of God, and called and empowered by him to engage culture, are to act that was just a side note. That was free. That was a parenthesis thing. I'm done. I'm done with that. But anyway, <clears throat> so what does it look like in the culture? Um, <clears throat> uh, every prophet, they, they, um, they don't tear people down and they don't tear culture down in order to create an opening for the gospel, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Theologian, pastor uh, spy, um, you know a uh, German theologian, pastor in the 1930s was ultimately uh, uh, killed by Adolf Hitler um, during uh, kind of a, a purging. Uh, he once said that theology does not need to disparage the world and aggravate the the neediness of women and men for the sake of trying to display the relevance of the gospel. The Word of God does not ally itself with this rebellion of mistrust of humanity. Instead, the word of God reigns. In order for the word of God to reign in your speech and in your engagement, it needs to reign in your life. So we see that the Bible is a prism of God's glory in history. It's a prophetic voice help, helping us engage, right, culture and, and engage it in, in a helpful way. And finally, as we kind of close, I want to see uh, how the word is, is hope in a promised future. The story that the Bible records is a story of... Um a universal history beyond space time, right? That, that God uh, exists beyond time and beyond space and that he created all of time. He created all of space, created all of us. And um, it, it's this beautiful story and gives us a picture of a God from beyond that doesn't stay beyond, right? He comes and he intersects our reality. He comes into our world. He has come from beyond to us. And the fact that God has come to us in Christ is supposed to give us hope, and the fact that one day we are going to go to Him is supposed to give us hope. And Paul writes in Romans that for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through encouragement the scriptures uh, of the scriptures we might have hope. Well the Bible points us to a future and tells us, and as Peter commends us to set our hope fully on that future on what is to be revealed, and it tells us of a future it tells us of this future in order that it might impact the way that we live today. Bonhoeffer again wrote something that is so pertinent. To this. And, and this is a guy who is, uh, is oppressed and is imprisoned uh, by the Nazis and has every right to despair about his current circumstances. But the hope that he has in Christ and the hope that he sees revealed in the church is what gets him through. And he says, what matters is not the beyond of this world, how it's created and preserved and given laws and reconciled and renewed. What is beyond this world is meant in the gospel to be here for this world there's an ethicist named Oliver O'Donovan who wrote this book called Resurrection and Moral Order. And the, the basic premise of the book is this, the Bible is true and indispensable because it records a real historic event, the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. But then the Bible interprets this event for us and tells us that Christ's resurrection was the beginning of a new world, the renewal of all things, and that in Christ, we are being renewed and are participating with him in the renewal of all things. So what does this look like in culture? What does it mean that we are a people? Uh, it means that we are a people uniquely motivated by our hope. And this hope is in what Christ is doing and will do. It impacts every sphere of our lives and begins to ripple throughout culture. So what does this look like? The best story that I can come uh, come up with and the illustration that I think is pertinent of uh, what real true hope based in reality and the effect they can have on culture, uh, what that looks like comes from Stephen King. Now you're laughing because, uh, it's not the first person you're going to go to for comfort, right? Um, you know, uh, I, I read some of what he writes. He's a, he's, a, he's an excellent writer despite some of the subject matter. Uh, but he, he truly is a, he's a great writer. And, um, uh, so it's, but it's understandable if he's not your first choice when you're, you know, when you need some comfort. Um, but years ago he wrote a story called, uh, Rita Hayworth in the Shawshank Redemption. It was made into an Academy Award-winning movie uh, probably 25 years ago uh, called The Shawshank Redemption. And it's a tale of hope. And if you haven't seen the movie, haven't read the story, uh, it tells the story of a man, Andy Dufresne, who's wrongfully convicted and he's sentenced to prison, Shawshank Prison in, in Maine. But he's innocent. And he's sent there to live among those who are guilty and who are enslaved. And there he meets a guy named Red. Red's a fellow prisoner, and the whole to- story is told through Red's perspective. And there's something different about Andy from all the other prisoners. And Red sees this. He, he notices this. And, uh, the- just the way that, um, Andy carries himself as he walks around the prison yard is different in this, in this world of brutality and extreme punishment. Um, he, Red describes it this way. Uh, He says that they send you here for life, and that's precisely what they take, your life. But Andy acts differently. He has something that's different. And even just the way that he walks around, you can can tell. And Andy fosters hope of release and freedom because he knows he's innocent. And he begins to disseminate this hope, hope for escape, hope for freedom among his fellow prisoners. And as the story goes, Andy finally does escape. Sorry to spoil it. Uh, but uh, but the movie's 25 years old. So if you haven't seen it or haven't read the book, I mean, it's your own fault. But so he, Andy finally escapes. And uh, he escapes judgment by crawling through a sewer pipe and emerging clean on the other side. And then he goes to Paradise. Which in this case is is Mexico in the story no need to laugh there um, that's, that's not part of the joke um, but uh, but Andy is a christ like figure in the story he 's innocent he's sent to suffer punishment he becomes a symbol and ultimately finds freedom, and is the first to find freedom by wading through the waste of humanity and merging clean and washed on the other side. And then he goes far away to paradise to wait. His story of freedom gives hope to Red, and ultimately it saves Red's life. And then he goes to meet Andy in Paradise, and Stephen King, who subtitled the work "Hope Springs Eternal," closes the book with these lines, and they're spoken by Red. Red's been released; he's paroled from prison, and he's on his way, breaking parole to to meet Andy in Mexico. And he says, "I'm excited, so excited I can hardly hold the pencil in my trembling hand. I think is this is an ex- excitement that only a free man can feel. A free man starting a long journey whose conclusion is certain. I hope Andy is down there." I hope it can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it is in my dreams. I hope. The story of hope that's in the Bible is not meant to transform culture. The story of hope that's in the Bible is meant to transform us. And only if we receive it, believe it is true, and proclaim it as reality can we have any hope to begin to see a change in the world around us? So when you begin to engage culture, the one tool that you have, the one tool that you've been given is the word. And unless you take it and begin to see the word through the prism of Christ and begin to see the world through the prism of the word and see the worth and the value of the people standing next to you and see the worth and the value of the things and culture and begin to elevate that and and proclaim that and, and reach out and claim that for Christ until that happens. We we are not going to see culture change or lives changed. Let's pray. Father God um there are many religions uh around the world belief systems in which um the the god and the deity is far off and distant that uh, he is he is hard to approach and that we uh as as subjects have to just work and hard and and strive in order to get his attention um god how grateful we are for the word that gives us the story and the record that um, you are not like that. You didn't leave us in sin. You are not beyond, but God, you have come to us and you pursue us and you know us and you love us. And in the immensity of all of the universe, of all of creation, you look at us and you say, mine. God, let that hope charge us. God, let our hearts burn uh, when we understand what Christ has done for us, when we read the Scripture and see the faithful testimony across thousands and thousands of years of what you've done. And God, let our heart, hearts burn uh, so much so that we are changed. And, God, then we begin to proclaim standing on your word as true to those around us, and they see the change in us. And, God, they change through the power of your Spirit. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, your humility that makes uh, our lives possible. And God, thank you for your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, so we have maybe Q&A?
0: Yes. Something like that? So we're going to have a few minutes of Q&A. Drew, thank you so much. I'm so uh, glad you're here, and that was fantastic. Thanks for having me. Do you have a question for Drew? Yes, applaud.
1: That's all right. Thanks.
0: Um... Any questions for Drew? I'm going to come around with the microphone so that he can hear you. Uh, Yeah, in the back. Great.
1: Let's make Jacob work off dinner, okay? Can the next person be up here? Can one of you guys do it?
0: I'm sure every uh, encounter you have with an indifferent person, you have to do a little different. You meet it as it comes. But in general, how do you deal with someone who is indifferent?
1: I think that... um, the, the biggest thing that i've seen is um, uh, the biz, the big, the thing that works um is not rushing it you know if if you tr- if you know that God is sovereign and that he has his sheep that are not of this fold and that they are his, and no one's going to take him out of his hand, and they are not going to pass away uh, apart from them coming to know him, he will uh, call to them they will follow him. Um, when you put that initial call out there and there is indifference, you, you still rest and you trust in that and you stay present, you know, you love them. You don't, um, this isn't, um, some kind of evangelistic, um, amazing race where we just go around the world and just try and rack up the number of people we've shared with and the number of people that we um, uh, lead to Christ. We're called to make disciples. and Discipleship begins long before people come to know Christ, right? It, it comes when you love them and, and and display Christ's love to them and um, listen to them and see where the gospel can be applied in their life. And so what, what I do is I just continue to love them, speak to them as long as until they tell me until they get the restraining order, I guess, I don't know. (laughs) Um, you know, but until they, you know, say, Hey, buzz off. Um, we, we continue to talk and we befriend and, and you, you, you stay with them, you know, and you, you don't treat them as a commodity, but you treat them as a person. So anything else? Yeah. Good, good, good.
2: I'm really concerned about, um, in looking at our culture, used to be when people were asked, you know, what is your faith? you got a whole litany of um, Protestant faiths. I'm Catholic or I'm, I'm Presbyterian or I'm Baptist or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then we expanded in this country, and so now we're either Christian or we're Muslim or we're some other defined, quote, system of beliefs, okay? It seems now that the, the trend is the largest and fastest-growing component in answering that question is none right okay so there doesn't seem to be a, a conceptual framework around any belief system that really applies to people against which they measure truth and yeah. if we assume that the, the bible is telling us truth in our politically correct world there is no truth mm. if you will how do, how do we bring that across and I know you say the long-term relationships and those kinds of things to this group of nuns, the growing group of nun.
1: Right. Um, well, I think the nuns are, um, they all have a, a religious belief system, right? Even if they say that they don't. I, and I think that the, the research has been done and there, there are guys, there's a guy named Christian Smith um, who uh, has written several books uh, talking about this group of, of kind of nuns. Um, not you know i don't know that's always funny to me uh, um but um uh, i'm thinking of catholic nuns but anyway um but this group of nuns right and that really they they have something this belief system is called moral therapeutic deism right it's the idea that they know that there's probably a god Um, that, um, it's probably good to be moral and you're moral because it kind of feels good. You know, it's therapeutic. And so you had moral therapeutic deism. And so, but what we, what we find and reason why the nuns are kind of increasing is that, um, those people who believe like that are in churches, And what's happening is that uh, what has happened over the last 25 to 30 years, large in part because I think um, uh, real, true biblical scholarship and preaching has been absent, and topical, cultural, wind-shifting, whatever has been present, is that you see um, people whose faith is not rooted in the Word, but just through a kind of therapeutic experience. So a lot of these people are fully secular sitting in the pew of a church, and all of a sudden, you know, their children grow up and don't want to come to school anymore, Sunday school, and don't want to come to church, and they are these nuns, you know? And so uh, what do you do? I mean, how do you um, uh, engage a world where there's just kind of moral relevance with uh, the truth of the Bible, I think it still comes down to the uh, what we have control over, which is our witness as a community, you know, as the church, uh, what we profess, the way that we act, the way that we love, the way that we treat others, the the consistency of our own belief and not in our perfection, but in our uh, humility and our constant confession that just like those nuns, we need Christ and we need His grace and we need His um, his mercy. So I don't know if that asked kind of, if that's specific enough. Um, but I think that, um, uh, in large part, it has to do with our, uh, our wit, the witness that we have as, as a community, what the truths? If, if we believe these truths and we, um, hold fast to these truths, are they really, is it really affecting the way that we live our lives? And it's really hard to make uh, arguments for kind of moral absolutism if you yourself are just kind of a relativist that goes whichever way the culture goes, right? And you live your life that way and your family's that way. And so I think that's been the biggest hurdle is that even in the midst of a church, a lot of people are, they six days, six and a half days a week, they absorb culture and two hours a week, they absorb um, Bible or church or Christianity. And that's not the way that it's supposed to be. So, so I hope, I hope that was helpful, but Bradley, I know, how do you use the Bible with people
3: who don't know the Bible?
1: Okay. Um, I find that it's, uh, easiest to just, um, uh, to share it with them. I mean, just say, you know, I know it sounds kind of basic, but I, you know, but really just. Um, invite them to read it uh, invite to to read it with them um, and really I mean I find it 's um, hopefully if you 're imbibing it and taking it in and it 's making an impact on your life and you 're changing a life it becomes the scripture should kind of become part of you it should come out of you you know when when people press in on you or life presses in on you, you know, hopefully what comes out is uh, you know out of the heart. The man speaks, right? So hopefully the scripture's coming out. I mean, hopefully when you're introducing someone to the Bible, if they've known you for any amount of time at all, you've been building kind of a relationship, the, the concepts that the Bible talks about and the words that it uses and the phrases it uses aren't completely foreign. And they're like, well, I had no idea you believe anything like this. I know you never talk like this. You know, I mean, um, hopefully there's some consistency there, right? And so really just, yeah, um, uh, if, someone is actually interested and they're to that point of like, what should I read? I would say, you know, read the gospel of John or read, you know, send them somewhere that is, um, uh, accessible and, and, you know, cause they open up the book, there's a thousand pages. They don't know where to start, help guide them that way, but really just kind of share it, share it with them.
3: Hi, hey, Drew. Um, yeah. thank you. I, I feel like what I see and hear a lot of in the evangelical Christianity world right now is a, the undercurrent of that is fear, this fear of culture, um, which I think can lead us to withdrawing and pulling out and then can then lead us to this tearing down of culture. We feel this impetus to, I'm afraid of that. So therefore I have to, to demonize it and we, so we can all run from it. Um, that kind of goes up against this idea that, that you were talking about of it's not our job to tear down culture but to kind of find ways in which we can celebrate that. Mm-hmm. Can you one kind of talk to that speak to that fear that yeah. feels ever present in our in our evangelical circles and also cel- talk about ways specifically that we can view culture and find ways to celebrate it just practically. Right. As Christians who so we can engage that and see where those kernels of gospel are present.
1: Right. That's uh, those are great questions. I think um that part of I mean the fear comes from um a lack of faith and I think it comes from um uh, whenever we put uh the source of our faith and the source of our comfort in anything other than God, um when that thing gets shaken, you know, we're going to fear. Right? I mean, that's, it's, that's, we built our house on that. So when it starts to shake, you know, we're going to get pretty nervous. That's why we're admonished. No, we, this is where we put our comfort, right? This is where we, we put our hope. So I think the way that we use the word is to, to, to read it, to drink it in, and to understand that it is, that it is true. And if it is true, it is real. And if it's real, then it should have an actual, measurable, discernible impact on the way that we engage our lives, and and whether we worry or not, and Christ says not to worry, whether we fear or not, and Christ says don't fear man, but fear what, you know, um, um, God, you know, fear God, and um, I think that taking Scripture in and um, allowing it to shape you that way, uh, like I said kind of in the text, you hopefully then begin to, you have a certain amount of freedom at that point, to where someone, your neighbor's, you know, uh, Wiccan tattoo parlor is not really that scary, okay, you know, um, and when they come up to show you their latest piece of artwork on their arm or something, you don't need to get that, you don't need to call the police or get freaked out or grab your gun, right? I mean, you you could say, you know, fine is there anything redeemable, you know, is it, are they, do they have talent, you know? Are they have talent? Well, God has given them talent, you know, even though it's, you know, Wiccan tattoo art. I don't know where that came from, but you know, um, that um, God has given them talent. We'll, we'll you know, elevate. Them. You were really talented. You know, you, you know, but, and and as you're talking to them, lead them to say, well, you've given talents for a reason. You know, God's given you an ability to craft and to mold and to make art. And, and uh, there, there's a reason, you know, why He's done that. And there's a purpose. And so I think that. Uh, that's kind of the progression. Is, is it's taking the word believing and allowing it to, to really shape and affect the way that you, you feel and the way that you live your life. And, and then in that freedom, you know, Paul says that I um, was uh, kind of all things to all men, right? And I, I did that so I, that I might win some. And you're only able to do that if you have a certain amount of freedom. Because in order to do that, you've got to give up your own little sacred cows and your own little idols and the things that you're putting your hope in. And anytime you don't want to do that, when someone comes and threatens those, you're gonna take a posture of fear. And that's not the way that we're called to live as Christians. Now it's, it's easier said than done. And I think in you're talking about broader evangelicalism and across the um, across the, the, the country and the world, you know, we we have see a massive shift in our culture over the last twenty five years where Christianity and, and conservatism and evangelicalism is on a downward tick. And I don't I don't fear that you know, I don't think we should fear that. You can lament it, I mean, that that it's sad, but it's, if anything, if we know the course of human history and see the way that God operates, remember we're looking at all of human history through kind of the prism of the Bible, we see that God does amazing things when Christians are in the minority and even when they're impressed. And if they get persecuted, Christianity often explodes beyond anything that we could possibly, you know, dream when we have all of this privilege. So I think seeing that and, and seeing Seeing um, downturns and seeing um, changes, not necessarily as threats, but opportunities is kind of the way way to go. Anything else or are we done?
0: Uh, we might have time for one more. Okay. Any other burning yeah. questions? Else?
1: If
0: you have a burning question, uh, maybe you could ask it in your table group as well. Yeah. Let's transition now. Um, To our table groups and our small discussion, if you're in the fan bank, I know some people in the choir have to go, so a a large number will be leaving. Just assume they're mad at you, but they're also going to the choir. Okay, yeah,
1: that's fine. Um, (laughs) They made it this far, so I'm really, I I, I feel great. Yeah, thanks. Very
0: good. Uh, And otherwise, if we're sticking around, let's get into groups of five to eight people. Um, If you have nine, we're not going to get mad. If you have ten... Be reasonable. Come on, guys. All right. Now, uh, five to eight people circle up, and we are going to ask questions 1, 9, 12, and 20. They'll be on the screen here at 715. We're going to be done and closed uh, in a corporate prayer together. So uh, dismiss now to your table groups. All right, guys. We're going to wrap things up. Undoubtedly, many of you could talk all night, and we encourage that, just not in the room, if that makes sense, you know? Okay. Um, I would love to hear uh, anything that came out of your group discussion, something that you might want to share overall. We can only have time for one or two. In particular, uh, question 12, how does this inform our worship? Uh, does somebody have something that they came out of their group? It doesn't have to be that question, but that's the one I'd like to hear from, uh, that you would like to share to the room. Yeah, take the microphone, David. That's good. Yeah.
3: I think one thing we were talking about is that with, with the comment that was made during the talk about celebrating culture, that I think if, I mean, if we celebrate culture in terms of reflecting God's truth, that, that is an act of worship. In this. I mean, that's what we're doing here. We're celebrating the truth of God. We're celebrating our salvation in Christ or whatever. We're celebrating God in this building. And so if we're celebrating what we see of God in culture, that that's just sort of taking that worshipful attitude and not confining it to the walls of the church or the places where it's officially Christian, but the, take, take it out into all of God's creation. Take that attitude outside the doors of the church.
0: Thank you for sharing that. Any others? How about question uh, 20? What's one thing I should pray about for myself and for others as a result of this topic and tonight's discussion? Did you guys even get that far? I got too, too excited on number one and number nine, the first questions. All right, so uh, two quick announcements before we close in prayer. Man Church is this Sunday at 6 o'clock in this room. Uh, men, we would love to have you back right in here. We're excited about that. Next week, Mary Beth Thomas, who's a counselor, is going to talk about identity. This is coming up a lot, particularly in culture now. And uh, we are very excited about what she is going to share with us. So uh, make it a point to be back here next week. We're going to close in prayer together by reading a corporate prayer out loud. Uh, If you'll stand with me. And we will pray together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven. Have a great night.